Section 13 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 Question de Jupon, Part 1. Meanwhile, things were looking ill with the Melbourne Ministry. Sir Robert Peel was addressing great meetings of his followers and declaring with much show of justice that he had created anew the Conservative Party. The position of the Whigs would in any case have been difficult. Their mandate, to use the French phrase, seemed to be exhausted. They had no new thing to propose. They came into power as reformers, and now they had nothing to offer in the way of reform. It may be taken as a certainty that in English politics reaction must always follow advance. The Whigs must just then have come in for the effects of reaction. But they had more than that to contend with. In our own time, Mr. Gladstone had no sooner passed his great measures of reform than he began to experience the effects of reaction. But there was a great difference between his situation and that of the Whigs under Melbourne. He had not failed to satisfy the demands of his followers. He had no extreme wing of his party clamoring against him on the ground that he had made use of their strength to help him in carrying out as much of his program as suited his own coterie, and that he had then deserted them. This was the condition of the Whigs. The more advanced liberals and the whole body of the Chartists and the working classes generally detested and denounced them. Many of the liberals had had some hope while Lord Durham still seemed likely to be a political power, but with the fading of his influence they lost all interest in the Whig ministry. On the other hand, the support of O'Connell was a serious disadvantage to Melbourne and his party in England. But the Whig ministers were always adding, by some mistakes or other, to the difficulties of their position. The Jamaica Bill put them in great perplexity. This was a measure brought in on April ninth, 1839, to make temporary provision for the government of the island of Jamaica by setting aside the House of Assembly for five years, and during that time empowering the governor and council with three salaried commissioners to manage the affairs of the colony. In other words, the Melbourne Ministry proposed to suspend for five years the constitution of jamaica no body of persons can be more awkwardly placed than a whig ministry proposing to set aside a constitutional government anywhere such a proposal may be a necessary measure it may be unavoidable but it always comes with a bad grace from whigs or liberals and gives their enemies a handle against them which they cannot fail to use to some purpose. What indeed it may be plausibly asked is the raison d'etre of a liberal government if they have to return to the old Tory policy of suspended constitutions and absolute law. When Rabagas become minister tells his master that the only way to silence discontent is by the liberal use of the cannon, the Prince of Monaco remarks very naturally, if that was to be the policy, he might as well have kept to his old ministers in his absolutism. So it is with an English liberal ministry advising the suspension of constitutions. 
in the case of the jamaica bill there was some excuse for the harsh policy after the abolition of slavery the former masters in the island found it very hard to reconcile themselves to the new condition of things they could not all at once understand that their former slaves were to be their equals before the law as we have seen much more lately in the southern states of america after the civil war and the emancipation of the negroes there was still a pertinacious attempt made by the planter class to regain in substance the power they had had to renounce in name this was not to be justified or excused but as human nature is made it was not unnatural on the other hand some of the jamaica negroes were too ignorant to understand that they had acquired any rights others were a little too clamorous in their assertion many a planter worked his men and whipped his women just as before the emancipation and the victims did not understand that they had any right to complain many negroes again were ignorantly and thoughtlessly bumptious to use a vulgar expression in the assertion of their new-found equality the imperial governors and officials were generally and justly eager to protect the negroes and the result was a constant quarrel between the jamaica house of assembly and the representatives of the home government the assembly became more insolent and offensive every day a bill very necessary in itself was passed by the imperial parliament for the better regulation of prisons in jamaica and the house of assembly refused to submit to any such legislation under these circumstances the melbourne ministry proposed the suspension of the constitution of the island the measure was opposed not only by peel and the conservatives but by many radicals it was argued that there were many courses open to the ministry short of the high-handed proceeding they proposed and in truth there was not that confidence in the melbourne ministry at all which would have enabled them to obtain from parliament a majority sufficient to carry through any such policy the ministry was weak and discredited anybody now might throw a stone at it they only had a majority of five in favour of their measure this of course was a virtual defeat the ministry acknowledged it and resigned their defeat was a humiliation their resignation an inevitable submission but they came back to office almost immediately under conditions that made the humiliation more humbling and rendered their subsequent career more difficult by far than their past struggle for existence had been the return of the whigs to office for they cannot be said to have returned to power came about in a very odd way gulliver ought to have had an opportunity of telling such a story to the king of the brobdingnagians in order the better to impress him with a clear idea of the logical beauty of constitutional government it was an entirely new illustration of the old cherche la femme principle the femme in this case however being altogether a passive and innocent cause of trouble the famous controversy known as the bedchamber question made a way back for the whigs into place when lord melbourne resigned the queen sent for the duke of wellington who advised her to apply to sir robert peel for the reason that the chief difficulties of a conservative government would be in the house of commons the queen sent for peel and when he came told him with a simple and girlish frankness that she was sorry to have to part with her late ministers of whose conduct she entirely approved but that she bowed to constitutional usage 
this must have been rather an astonishing beginning to the grave and formal peal but he was not a man to think any worse of the candid young sovereign for her outspoken ways the negotiations went on very smoothly as to the colleagues peel meant to recommend to her majesty until he happened to notice the composition of the royal household as regarded the ladies most closely in attendance on the queen for example he found that the wife of lord normanby and the sister of lord morpeth were the two ladies in closest attendance on her majesty now it has to be borne in mind it was proclaimed again and again during the negotiations that the chief difficulty of the conservatives would necessarily be in ireland where their policy would be altogether opposed to that of the whigs lord normanby had been lord lieutenant of ireland under the whigs and lord morpeth whom we can all remember as the amiable and accomplished lord carlisle of later time irish secretary it certainly could not be satisfactory for peel to try to work a new irish policy while the closest household companions of the queen were the wife and sister of the displaced statesman who directly represented the policy he had to supersede had this point of view been made clear to the sovereign at first it is hardly possible that any serious difficulty could have arisen the queen must have seen the obvious reasonableness of peel's request nor is it to be supposed that the two ladies in question could have desired to hold their places under such circumstances but unluckily some misunderstanding took place at the very beginning of the conversation on this point peel only desired to press for the retirement of the ladies holding the higher offices he did not intend to ask for any change affecting a place lower in official rank than that of lady of the bedchamber but somehow or other he conveyed to the mind of the queen a different idea she thought he meant to insist as a matter of principle on the removal of all her familiar attendants and household associates under this impression she consulted lord john russell who advised her on what he understood to be the state of the facts on his advice the queen stated in reply that she could not consent to a course which she conceives to be contrary to usage and is repugnant to her feelings sir robert peel held firm to his stipulation and the chance of his then forming a ministry was at an end lord melbourne and his colleagues had to be recalled and at a cabinet meeting they adopted a minute declaring it reasonable that the great offices of the court and situations in the household held by members of the parliament should be included in the political arrangements made on a change in the administration but they are not of opinion that a similar principle should be applied or extended to the offices held by ladies in her majesty's household the matter was naturally made the subject of explanation in both houses of parliament sir robert peel was undoubtedly right in his view of the question and if he had been clearly understood the right could hardly have been disputed but he defended his position in language of what now seems rather ludicrous exaggeration he treated this question de jupon as if it were of the last importance not alone to the honour of the ministry but even to the safety of the realm i ask you he said to go back to other times take pitt or fox or any other minister of this proud country and answer for yourselves the question if it is fitting that one man shall be the minister 
responsible for the most arduous charge that can fall to the lot of man and that the wife of the other that other his most formidable political enemy shall with his express consent hold office in immediate attendance on the sovereign oh no he exclaimed in an outburst of indignant eloquence i felt that it was impossible i could not consent to this feelings more powerful than reasoning told me that it was not for my own honour or for the public interests that i should consent to be minister of england this high-flown language seems oddly out of place on the lips of a statesman who of all his contemporaries was the least apt to indulge in bursts of overwrought sentiment lord melbourne on the other hand defended his action in the house of lords in language of equal exaggeration i resume office he said unequivocally and solely for this reason that i will not desert my sovereign in a situation of difficulty and distress especially when a demand is made upon her majesty with which i think she ought not to comply a demand inconsistent with her personal honour and which if acquiesced in would render her reign liable to all the changes and variations of political parties and make her domestic life one constant scene of unhappiness and discomfort End of section thirteen